Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. And welcome to Rex Sykes Movie Meet Conversations with Filmmakers, where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you'll learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV. We will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and I'll provide you with guests and information you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. And so now let's move behind the scenes here at Movie Beat. My guest today is director Michael Osibo. I'm going to tell you more about him in just a minute, but I want to do a couple of things. One is, uh, if you're listening and you've been a fan of the show for the past 11 years, you know that I don't have the bumper music anymore because they deleted my file and I have to find it. It's on a hard drive somewhere and I have to get it. Uh, people really like the music, uh, but it's not there. And uh, so I yelled, quiet, please, prior to the music starting. Um, I'm doing that just to have a little bit of the feel of, of, of Rex Ike's movie. All of these shows, just so that you know, um, when I post a link, you can listen live using that link. And then that very same link can be used to listen to the recorded show. So if you're listening live right now or recorded and you want to share it with your friends, you can use that same link. Um, the only thing is, is once the live show ends, it takes a few minutes for the uh, recording process to process and then it's available. Uh, but you can share it at any time. And I sure hope that you do. There's over 500 hours of recorded what to do and what not to do guest on movie beat and it's available at rexsykes.com that's my name r-e-x-s-i-k-e-s.com um, that's an archived legacy website that has um, hundreds of hours there um, blog talk radio has all of the hours there and uh, the apple itunes store has uh, you know 300 hours or something like that so you can get it anywhere um, the most current shows are on apple on blog talk and uh, i'm glad that you're here michael Oh, Cybell, let me tell you about Michael, and let me tell you what happened. Yesterday, we were doing the show. Uh, Michael's a writer, a producer, a director, and his career has spanned now over three decades. Wraith, which we uh, discussed yesterday, probably uh, will discuss some more today, uh, is his most recent film. He shot it in Nina, Wisconsin. It stars Lance Henderson, J- Jackson Hurst, and Allie Hillist. Um, yesterday during the show, and, and he's responsible for up to 40 movies and 400 television shows as either a producer, director, writer, or a DP. So um, I'm so happy to hear him here. He's currently in production on a movie called The Mulligan, based on the Ken Blanchard and Wally Armstrong book. Um, and uh, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about digital distribution and, uh, and a host of other things. But um, yesterday, what happened was in the middle hour, when I was going to take a break, suddenly... Um, I was booted out of my show. I was booted out of the studio and I couldn't get back in. Um, I had to uh, end the show right there. It just ends kind of abruptly. So if you've listened and it just ends. Uh, so a half hour later, when I could get back into the studio, we did part two. So there's two hours of Michael Seibel discussing movies. You've got to go and listen to both of them. Uh, they haven't been edited together. They're just two separate hours right now. And now this will be part three, but it's actually another two-hour session. So uh, you got four great hours with Michael Seibel. I'm going to bring him on right now. And, uh, and Michael, hi, are you there? Yes, of course I am. I was just thinking that, you know, in the tradition of the Godfather movies, yesterday was Godfather 1 and 2, and this is the <laughs> third one, and I hope it doesn't have the same result. <laughs> Very cool. Um, no, me too. And right before the show, right when I was trying to get a hold of you, um, I had computer errors. Suddenly everything bogged up. I'm, I'm on a max or something. I'm getting beach balls being thrown at me and it's not, 
processing. So I shut the whole thing down. I lost all sorts of really pertinent things I was working on. I was transcribing something and, and it's all gone. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it saves the text, but it, it loses the place in, in the video. So I've got to go back and rework that, but it's worth it. It is absolutely worth it. Um, it we're now up and running and hopefully it'll be a smooth, smooth ride um, for the rest of the, the two hours that you're here. Um, your websites are wraiththemovie.com. That's W-R-A-I-T-H, the movie, all one word, dot com. And uh, out cold entertainment, all one word, just like it sounds, it's, it's, out, O-U-T, oh, cold. Out cold mm-hmm. entertainment is, is my Facebook page. and that, I beg it, your pardon. Yeah. Yeah, I said that yesterday, too. I said dot com, I believe. but And then you corrected me. So out cold entertainment is the Facebook page. Uh, RaceTheMovie.com is the movie page, and here we are again today. We talked about a lot of cool things yesterday, and um, uh, maybe we ought to, and, and I know you you would like to, but maybe we ought to talk about some of your early influences in growing up and how you got involved and and uh, what led to what. You uh, graduated cum laude at, at UCLA, and you taught at USC, and you, you've been working in the industry for 30 years, so uh, how did you get the bug? Oh my goodness! It's that, I love telling this story, and uh, I've actually um, should post on on some website or something uh, a, an article that I wrote for the paper in uh, Wausau, Wisconsin, uh, the Wausau Daily Record Herald, and uh, you should be familiar with that. And I don't think your listeners would realize this, and that we didn't know each other at all right. from Adam, but we grew up in the same small town in central Wisconsin, right. Wausau, Wisconsin. And um, I was born in Madison, uh, but, you know, before I can almost remember, we moved to Wausau, and uh, so pre- pre-kindergarten and all of that. And um, I, I, I was, uh, you know, I would walk up the street coming home from school and um, I lived on the west side of town in a new house. My dad was an architect, and he designed this really cool house. And um, I was walking up the street, and I would see all the doctors um, uh, who had the cars with the big fins, you know. And oh, one, God, doctor, yeah. Yeah, one doctor next door even had, um, you know, a, uh, a, a friend with an XKE, a Jaguar. And I got wow. to sit in it, and we took a Polaroid of it uh, and all of that. So. I mean, I, I, I early on realized that there were certain benefits to making more money than not. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and yet I had these artistic leanings. And um, when uh, I was in, uh, I think, seventh grade, uh, for sure, I not think, I know, uh, I, I was at St. Anne's uh, Catholic uh, grade school in, um, uh, on Bridge Street, and uh, there was a writing teacher who suddenly wrote a note on one of my papers saying, great story. And then she put an A with a circle around it. And there was something about that momentary encouragement that really set me going because I was terrible in math. I was, I, I was okay in other subjects. Uh, I was never going to be a priest. I was never going to be an athlete. And, the, the, I, so I started writing papers about, uh, or short stories, I should say, about aliens and pyramids and, you know, the Titanic and all this stuff. 
and I kept getting A after A after A. And um, uh, then a, a teacher uh, at a public school uh, found out about me some way, maybe through my brother, at John Muir Junior High. Back then we called it a junior high. And I went over there and I worked on all the sets for the plays. And um, uh, he was a, a really great guy. His name was uh, Jerome Hartwig, Mr. Hartwig. And Henry uh, Hartwig, he's a friend of mine. I mean, I know him personally, but he's a friend of mine on, on uh, Facebook as well. See, I knew that sooner or later I'd hit some sort of a, you know, a, a, a tuning fork and all of that. <laughs> yes. And and so Mr. Hartwig and I are just recently came back into touch because oh, okay, I'm writing you. a book that I'd like to talk about maybe in the next hour or whatever. It's not about movies, but it's 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 called My Wausau, and it's a memoir of growing up in Wausau. And uh, the the opening page says that my life would be completely different if there had been security cameras back then. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> um, I was uh, uh, – and, and what we would do, and, you know, we, we almost got into this yesterday, is the demographics of, of film viewership and why people go. And there really are five major demographics. Um, the first is is male. And it's, uh, you know, between, I don't know, 14 and 24, something like that. And those are the, you know, uh, Fast and Furious movies and, and all of that. And, and those are the movies, and, and big adventure movies, movies that are driven to make over $100 million probably on the opening weekend. Those are usually appealing to that demographic. The next demographic would be males over that age uh, till I don't know how late you can go. And then... The next demographic is women or girls between 14 and 24, and a lot of what they like are um, are, 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 are movies that the guys take them to, but there's also occasionally a movie like Titanic where they'll go over and over and over again to see, you know, uh, the young man from Chippewa Falls, Jack Dawson, you know, and um, mm-hmm. so uh, Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio, of course. But okay. then, then there's older women uh, uh, above 24 who love, you know, like chick flicks. I mean, I don't mean that in a disparaging way. It's just a common <laughs> expression. Uh, and it is like things like Jack Nicholson and Diane Keaton, romantic comedies and, you right. know, like, uh, uh, under the Tuscan sun and, you know, all of that type of movie. And then the fifth demographic are ethnic movies, which t- tend to appeal to people of different, um, ethnic persuasions. Um, in particular, uh, about the time we were showing Wraith in uh, a- Appleton, uh, some guy uh, rented an Indian movie in three different languages, uh, uh, Hindi, Telugu, and whatever the other language, main language is, and he packed out the theaters here for three weeks. I didn't know there was such a large Indian population. So, you know, uh, you got Tyler Perry might fall under that. Uh, heading and um, you know some Spike Lee and and you know a lot of these people I just mentioned their films reach a broader demographic which which is what makes the film successful but uh, they're, they're like the Indian films I mean I would go in there and I wouldn't even know what they were saying so uh, I, anyway uh, I, I, would, I, 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 I would just to piggyback on that I want you to keep your point and, and continue but um, Dan Davies, who you and I both personally know, a Wisconsin resident filmmaker who's made movies here and, and elsewhere and is, is big in Nollywood, the African 
you know, community and uh, the Jamaican communities and things like that. Uh, he and I, he just did a show with me recently and we were talking and I said, I had gone to see a Matt Damon movie. I forget what it was. It might've been, you know, the big sci-fi thing. And it was like a 10 o'clock showing. And we came into the movie theater in, in the Milwaukee area. And there were just tons of Indians and saris and, and Indian garb coming and going. And I, I asked uh, one of the people working at the tickets, I go, what's going on? They go, it's Bollywood. And I go, yeah. And they go, we get more viewers from Bollywood Indian movies than we do for our domestic movies. I mean, Matt Damon's movie didn't even hit anything compared to what the Bollywood movies apparently do. So they've scheduled like two nights a week that were just dedicated to Bollywood movies. Uh, I well, had this, I had never known. I was like totally shocked. I was like, this is oh, wild. I, I've not only directed a film in India, I've directed a music video in Bombay, in, in Mumbai. So I've, I've, been a Bollywood director, and it is a trip. But I'll get into that. Uh, if you re- if you want to make a note and ask me about that a little later in this interview, let's do it. But um, okay, Baba. Anyway, I I was part of the um, demographic of of it, when growing up in Wausau, where we just went to the movie theater. Uh, for many reasons. Uh, one was to see the movie, but two, the Grand Theater, if you recall, it had that great men's lounge and women's lounge. Oh, my uh, God, uh, beautiful. The upper lobby off the balcony, and you could go in there and have a cigarette. I could get away from home at 14 and have a cigarette. And then on Friday the 13th, they'd have a triple or quadruple bill of horror films. Yeah, yeah. Usually Hammer and, and Halloween. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I was there. I was always there. I mean, it was like mm-hmm. it was like part of my social calendar, you know, like your iCal that says all day and it would be Grand Theater. And so uh, I I went there many times and there were a couple of girls that I used to love to take and the girls would go separately. The guys would go separately. And then at some point you'd get up and you'd bump into each other and say, hey, why don't we sit together? And then you'd make out and all that. Well, during all this time. Dr. Zhivago came to town. Oh, and, right. Uh, I, I, I know that my parents really wanted to see it, and they went to see it and probably took me the first time. Mm-hmm. And the, the Dr. Zhivago by David Lean, uh, off the novel by Boris Pasternak about Yuri Zhivago in the Russian Revolution, and he's got two girls in different spots. You know, he's got uh, uh, Chaplin, Geraldine Chaplin, and Ona O'Neill, and and, and Julie Christie, and I mean, my gosh, and the music, and Rod Steiger, and the and the cinematography, and the everything about this film blew me away. Now, I'm not going to say or pretend that I knew the intricacies of the plot, how the guy on the train with the glasses was a revolutionary, and you know, and and this was his the daughter of 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 Yuri Zhivago that he was sitting across. I, I didn't know all that. I just knew that this was a great film. You sometimes just recognize art without being able to, you know, qualify or quantify mm-hmm. it. And, mm-hmm. and I saw it again and again and again. And of course, my, my apologies to the theaters in Wausau. We all knew a way to sneak in by then and <laughs> all of that. But one day, the, um, one day the theater manager said to me, Oh, it's that was you Mr. again. Belt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, oh, I didn't know his name. Thank you. Yeah. He said, oh, you again. Just come on in, you know? And <laughs> and that was really something. And so this all ties into that I uh, 
we had a TV. We probably had a color TV right around uh, that time. And we were uh, – actually, it was a few years later. It was right around the moon landing. So that would be 68 or 69. And But one night, you know, ABC used to show on Sunday night the movie of the week or whatever. And they had, were showing – uh, some movie that lasted an hour and 45 minutes with commercials, and they had that 10 or 15 minutes to fill. So they showed the making of Dr. Zhivago. Wow. Uh, and I, I, I went, wait a minute. That really didn't happen as they shot it? I mean, they had cameras, and they did takes, and there were lights, and there were technicians, and, 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 and they made these artificial icicles in the, in the ice palace that he goes back and visits, and, and it's all full of ice. And, and my gosh, and, and look at this David Lean guy. He's in charge of everything. He can tell people what to do. I had, up until that point, just been playing in a sandbox with Army soldiers, <laughs> and now look at this. And, I said, and, and at that moment, I said, that is exactly what I want to do. I want to be a movie director, and I must say that wow. through my life, not much has really uh, steered me off of that course. So there's your, wow. there's, your, there's your beginning of it, and then there's a part two about how I worked with Omar Sharif. Wow. Well, so, and I want to come to that. So I'm going to share a little bit from my side because we share the thing. Saturday afternoons at the Grand Theater, they had uh, like for 35 cents, you could get a ticket through the churches, and they would run a serial you know, a chapter episode, they would run a newsreel, they ran cartoons and it was a double feature and it was like 35 cents. The yep. last movie, I, the last movie I think I saw in Wassa, it took a girlfriend to, I think it cost me a dollar, maybe $2 to get into the theaters. Um, I moved to Hollywood when I was 17 or 18. And, um, and uh, you know, my friends there, you know, high, high school or right out of high school kind of thing. Um, and that's how I got to know so many, so many, you know, child stars and things. But the, um, the Wausau thing, I did my, my acting debut, singing, dancing debut, when I, or dancing, acting, and acrobatic debut at four years old at the Grand Theater in the Nutcracker Suite. And I also was in like, I think it was Kiss Me Kate. I was a magician, just kind of a, a background player in that. But I did plays. And I was an acrobat. And so they would do performances at the Grand Theater. Um, I don't remember how many years, but I did that. And we would rehearse in Moose Hall over on Jackson Street and then oh, do, yeah. the, yeah, do yeah. the stuff. But that Grand Theater and then the Rogers Cinema, which became the Wausau Theater. Um, but uh, Jerome Hartwig, uh, I, I, he was my acting teacher and drama coach in high school. I went to East uh, and or Horace Mann, but East High School. and. Um, uh, but I, I've watched the Marx Brothers uh, uh, duck soup sitting on my mom's lap would sit, you know, on Saturday, Sunday afternoons, we'd watch movies together and, you know, the old military movies. But I remember watching duck soup and the missile flying through the room. And I, and I, and I loved the Marx Brothers and that's what I want to do. I was four years old and I wanted to do that. And, um, and so I always wanted to be actor. I never thought big enough to be a director, you know, and when I was a kid, I thought that, you know, the way movies were made was they had cameras everywhere. So if somebody was running down the street and then ran into a building, there was a camera on the inside of the building to capture them. And the camera was outside on the street. It, you, you didn't cut and edit and piece things together. It was just one continuous, like multiple camera things that you put together. Um, but then started to make movies when I was about uh, nine or 10 with some older boys using our soldiers in the sandbox and things like that. And so 
Um, and that's when we started making movies and then live action little shorts. And, but I, I told my mom and dad, for my, I was, let's go to Hollywood. I want to be in the movies. And I'm like, well, we can't. I go, well, why can't you? They go, because, you know, our life is here. And I'm like, I'm out of here the second I can get out of here. And I did. So, um, but, but uh, I'll tell you, the, the thing I love best about Wassa is over on, I think it's the end of Third Avenue. I think it's the Lions Club or something. They now do the water ski shows there. There's little water docks that face the mountain. So you're off of uh, the Wisconsin River, or Lake Wassa area. And, and I would go there. I, I haven't been there in years, but I like to just drive up there and sit on that little like floating dock and look at the mountain, which is actually a hill, and, uh, and, and relax and, and hang there because it was truly lovely. Ah, we revealed one of your, your secret heart spots. And, uh, it is, and, it is. It truly yeah. is. I, I, I know that... Uh, you know, I mean, I, I lost left, my virginity in Wasa, so, you know, what can I say? <laughs> well, someday <laughs> you should mount an expedition and go find it. <laughs> but anyway, that would be a Groucho Marx line, okay? It, it certainly um, would. Yeah. So anyway, I um, uh, just, I guess, to finish this, this part two of this story mm-hmm. would be that I was um, – I, 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 I went on to uh, move to Appleton, and then I went to Oshkosh, UW Oshkosh, for a couple of years, and then to UCLA, uh, and I graduated from UCLA in, in the film department, and, and it was pretty cool, and, and, and my career went on, and everything, you know, on and on and on, and I want to skip over a huge segment you maybe want to talk about later or whatever, but uh, the day came when I was hired to direct... Uh, the movie One Night with a King, which is if you uh, any one of your viewers or listeners, I should say, are familiar with the Old Testament and the Bible, there's the Book of Esther. And uh, the Book of Esther is about a Jewish girl who is, her family is still living in captivity in Babylon, uh, and yet they have been, uh, the the king, uh, Darius and then his son Xerxes, have allowed the Jews to repatriate, to go back to Israel if they wanted. But a lot of them stayed because they were part of the culture now, and, they, and it was their home, and they had businesses. And just like your parents wouldn't leave Wausau to move to Hollywood, uh, Esther's parents wouldn't move. And the, the, the I knew book, there was a co- co- connection. Hey, man, I can connect anything. So <laughs> anyway, so uh, the, 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 I was one of the maybe a dozen directors, including some very uh, – shall we say, prominent directors who were being interviewed to direct this film uh, over in India for like five months. You'd go there, pre-production was a couple of months, and then about three months of filming. I mean, it was a big-time uh, oh, deal. And the, uh, what I, uh, how I, my final interview to get this movie is uh, they, they called me up at about 5 o'clock on a Friday afternoon in L.A., and I was over by Beverly Hills uh, and by 20th Century Fox, and they were at the old Hanna-Barbera Studios by Universal, just to give everybody an approximate idea. Now, you can explain to your listeners how impossible it is to get from where I was to over there on a <laughs> Friday afternoon in L.A. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it, it, you I know mean, why? Truly. You know why people take helicopters, you know? Uh, oh, gosh, yeah. And it's insane. So I, I, they said, come on over. Can you make it over in about 45 minutes? 
And I said, sure. <laughs> and, and I called my wife, who was in surgery with, with other doctors uh, at Cedars-Sinai, and they said, okay, here's the way to get over there. You cut through Truesdale, you go over this, you take Cherokee, you get down to Coldwater, you go over, you take Mulholland. You know, they gave me that whole route. Oh, yeah, it, it sure. Was early, early version of Waze. But I walked into this meeting, and I had this very thick book, and it's, it's, it's David Lean's autobiography. And I put, the, put it down on the desk in front of me, and I said, I put my finger on it. I said, this is how I want to direct your movie, big oh, wow. time, widescreen, you know, uh, major actors. And they, they just lit up. And the writer in particular was, was, you know, was very happy. So fast forward, I got wow, the job. Cool. I, yeah, fast forward, I got the job. And I was in India, and uh, but the, this one of the particular producers. There were like five producers. Uh, the main producer's named is Matt Crouch and his wife, but uh, uh, but the, a guy named Larry Mordoff. And Larry knew a manager in London who managed Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif. I mean, my well, gosh. Both, both, both of those guys, yeah, both of those guys were from Lawrence of Arabia, obviously, and Omar Sharif uh, continued on with uh, right. uh, Dr. Vago. So they were pay or play for a movie, um, gosh, Gilgamesh. It's a, it's a Persian or some sort of a mythological uh, or, or, or a tale, you know, and uh, they were both pay or play, and the film never got its full financing. So these guys were sitting around, Omar Sharif in his hotel in Paris and Peter O'Toole in London. They were just hanging out with their paychecks, you know, from this movie, and they were available because wow. they had blocked up that time. And so Larry Mordoff kept saying to me every other day, he'd go, Michael, do you want Omar? i go, Larry, do it, do it. And, and finally the day came that they said Omar Sharif is going to play a part in your film and I wow. just couldn't believe it. Here I was, a 14 or 15 year old kid at the Grand Theater watching him in Dr. Zhivago and now here he was. So the countdown to him coming to India, I mean you had to fly from one place to the next to, uh, to, to finally to Bombay or Mumbai then and you had to then fly on a two-propeller plane. It was like an Indiana Jones movie where you see the line, you know, where right, the plane right. is going. And then, so, uh, the, 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 about a week before Omar was going to come, his secretary or his personal assistant called and said in the production um, office, does anybody need anything from Paris? <laughs> and I said, yeah, sure. I'll have some foie gras. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, I mean, uh -huh. duck liver in, in, in the middle of India, I, I, uh -huh. you know, 110 degrees and it's a sandstorm and, you know, and all that. And, and so about four days later, I walk into my hotel room and there is one of those huge gift baskets oh, wow. of foie gras and crackers and little breads and um, pâtés and, um, and, and biscuits and wine and a corkscrew and and even can openers to open up the cans of stuff and little knives and and it was uh to my director from omar sharif wow how cool oh my gosh i mean get out of here so so then 
he he arrived and we said let's let's meet at my office just the two of us and talk about your persona your role your appearance your wardrobe your lines anything else that comes to mind and so here i was sitting in my office <laughs> knock at the door in india i'm in i'm in rajasthan india in the that's <laughs> That's like the the the, uh, the county, and then uh, or the state, if you will. And I'm in the town of Jodhpur in an old palace, and in walks Omar Sharif. Now wow. he's wearing black shoes, black pants, black shirt, black sport coat, with a silver belt buckle and a silver belt, and silver <laughs> hair. I'm classy. He was just a stunning international movie star. And I stood up and we shook hands. And then we got down to business, you know, now what's my character? I look at my character this way and, and, and absolutely, sir, and on and on. And we talked about his beard, how it should be trimmed, his hair. And, and it was just a, a, a very professional working meeting. And then we shook hands. He got up. He was walking out the door, and he almost made it to the door when I said, Mr. Sharif, you're the reason I'm in this business. You're the reason I'm here. And he turned around and smiled and said, I get that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I mean, there I was, 15-year-old boy again. But, I mean, here we were 35 years later, and I'm I'm about to do a movie with him. So I cannot... uh, uh, I've had many blessings in my life, but uh, very few greater than that. That's truly amazing, and and uh, it's, it's awesome. I'm going to share a short story with you that's not nearly as uh, cool or impressive. But I had been a huge fan of Maximilian Schell, and I loved. I thought he should have got the Academy Award instead of Nicholson for Man in a Glass Booth, and uh, disappointed he didn't. And one day I met Schwab's drugstore having breakfast. I ate there for 10 years with, with many, many notables. And I turn around and there's Maximilian Schell sitting there. And I, I almost lost it. I mean, I turned around and said, oh, Mr. Shell," And then could almost not speak. And he looked at me up from his food and I just kind of stood there and went, um, I, I, um, um. and he's the only star that ever it just totally stopped me. And I, a lot of people don't even know who he is, but I just was so impressed with him as an actor that I, I couldn't speak, I couldn't talk. And he went, thank you. And just kind of nodded. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm gone. I'm bye. Sorry. <laughs> Left. I had nothing, to, nothing of any fruitful value, you know, or, I mean, I was just a stupid kid that, uh, that uh, was starstruck uh, at that moment. But um, yeah. Neat. Uh, Neat. So what a cool, what a cool story. I mean, how, how marvelous and how, and like I said, full circle to, to go, I'm going to be in the, I want to do that because of that man. And then to be able to work with that man and, and, and meet him under those circumstances, just, uh, that's awesome. That's truly, truly a wonderful story. Uh, yeah. And, and, and I, I probably have more stories than you have time. And, uh, the, um, well, it, we, it, it we've was... got plenty of days to, to shoot. We're all homebound. We can do this again. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I think my kids are. My wife is starting to say, "Are you on that thing every day now?" And are you now? Are you now? Every only every a couple day, more right? hours. Uh, yeah. 
I, I so, got. I want to. I want to tell you a story. I mean, and, and then I want to get back to you. But you know, you talked about traffic. I was in Woodland Hills, Tarzana, somewhere out there. It was about two thirty in the afternoon on a Friday, and my agent said you have to get to Crossroad of the Circles, Crossroad of the World, you know, which was down on Highland and Sunset. And I'm like, for what? She goes, oh, you've got an audition. And I go, for what? They go, they want you to play Jesus. And I said, I'm not Jesus. Nobody's going to cast me as Jesus. She says, just get there. I said, you, I'm not going to be able to get there. I go, when is it? She goes, you got to be there by five. And I'm like, wow. oh. and I shot down. I drove it. I got there literally like 4.59. I mean, I found a parking spot. I got there. It took me two hours to get from where I was. I think I went mostly on Ventura Boulevard because the freeway was just completely backed up. I walk into the place. There's a front desk. As I'm walking in, the director walks out. He goes, what are you here for? I said, Jesus. He goes, no. And he turns around and walks out. Oh, that's funny. Gosh. Oh, that's that's fantastic story. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Oh, oh, I, you should have said, how about Judas? Come on. <laughs> I was so, I mean, I was so. I mean, literally, like, disappointed that I had driven all that time to get there to be treated like that, that I just turned around and I walked out. I wish I had, you know, said, well, wait, wait, you know, I mean, since I'm here. But, uh, you know, I just, uh, yeah, typical. Well, I, um, I've got a, a similar story in a, in a sense that I think will be quite inspiring to those who are listening to this. And, um, and, and um, you know, we, we talk about uh, – there used to be a billboard like in L.A. of Abraham Lincoln, and it said he failed, 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 and then he became president and freed the slave. And uh, I was uh, – I've got one particular producer friend uh, who is probably single-handedly uh, more pro-Michael Seibel than, than um, other producers not not that i haven't run into maybe a half a dozen uh at the most i might add but um two or three producers but this one this guy's name is john shepherd and uh, he actually played in one of those friday the 13th movies i mean i don't know if it was part three or five or six or whatever but um uh, a, a dear friend and he was whenever he got wind and, and we were in L.A., and whenever he got wind that there was uh, producers coming through town who wanted to interview directors, he would always throw me into the mix. And um, I, I'm just so grateful for that. And uh, one particular producer was coming to town, and his project was called Bobby Jones, Stroke of Genius. Now, Bobby Jones, uh, to the non-athletically inclined out there, is one of the greater golfers of all time. Uh, he really did a lot to promote the game of golf, and he actually was, a, I think, a builder or architect or founder of the course in Augusta where the Masters is played. Uh, used to be played every every spring, but now it's going to be postponed this year uh, because of the plague. But um, the... Um, the, the, I, I mean, I can't think of a more appropriate film for me than, you know, I've been to Scotland. I've played at the old course on my honeymoon. Uh, and, and, and so I went to the, I read the script. And the cool thing about it is that Bobby Jones had a relationship with some of the older silent film stars. And he would come and hang out in Hollywood. He'd be on some movie sets. He was friends, I think, with Fairbanks and, and things like that. And so I went into the meeting, and I don't think they were 100% uh, 
happy with their script. That's almost universally true, by the way, but um, except for some rare exceptions. But uh, I, uh, they said, well, how would you do this film? And I walked in the door to that meeting and sat down to five producers. One of them was closing their briefcase already. One was looking at their plane tickets. Another one was looking at his watch. And another one was listening to what I had to say, but politely, you know, with their teeth clenched. (laughs) And I said to myself, well, I drove all the way here. I've read the script a couple of times. I made these notes. And damn it, I'm going to tell them what I think about this script. Well, what I found out later was that they'd hired the guy before me. Uh, one of my other friends who was the unit production manager um, uh, really was advocating for this other director who he knew quite well and had done a movie with before. So, I mean, that that's just, you know, the, how the, the, the cookie crumbles, as they say, I guess. And so I... Um, I left the meeting, and I, on my way home, I'm going, should I be thankful that even though I did not get the movie, should I be thankful anyway? So I said a prayer. I said, you know, I'm thankful that I had the opportunity and whatever. So meanwhile, they go and shoot all over the world, and they shoot in, in, they're in Scotland and everywhere. And I think one of the producers started saying to another producer, you know, Michael had an idea about this scene that I really liked. And the other one goes, yeah, you know, you're right. And it's not that the, the director did a bad job on the movie. I'm not trying to compare myself in that way. Uh, but, but I was able to, you know, shoot off all my guns. So when they had the next film up to do, which was called The Ultimate Gift, I really was the only guy. They called me up and said, will you do this? Now, I still had to go through the notes process and the rewrite and the, uh, give them a lot of pitches about you know how I would treat certain characters and casting ideas and all that. It wasn't a slam dunk, but I really was the main candidate. So even though I failed on that one interview and uh, maybe not exactly a, a apples to apples to your experience of the directors <laughs> saying no and walking past you, which I think is hilarious. I'm sorry. It probably was painful <laughs> at the moment. but At the moment. Know, yeah, and, 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 but, but sometimes failure does lead to success. And oh, uh, just this morning at 7.30, I was told no to the rights to a project that I really, really want to do. And uh, uh, I'm not going to get into any. I'm not at liberty to get into any detail at the moment. But uh, uh, you know, we we almost daily uh, face uh, rejection and failure, and, uh, uh, and 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 even like growing up in Wausau, where I walk past the cars with the big fins. Um, I, I it's been it's been uh, you know the the income, the prestige the cycles of doing a big movie, then not getting called for anything for a couple of years to two or three projects that fall through. And I mean, that, that just that whole repeating cycle, uh, you know, uh, wash, spin, dry. <laughs> it right, just, right. you know, and I'm sure you've experienced that too. Um, so anyway, that's, well, I, that's, I'll share something. Uh, yeah. And then I want to ask you an important question about communicating your ideas that, uh, as you describe, or have you described some of that? Because I think it's important. 
Um, when I was uh, 22, uh, I wrote a screenplay. It got a lot of heat. People wanted to buy it everywhere. I mean, it was amazing. We put it out. We, we, we didn't know how to control it. So we you know, probably sent out like 60 copies all over the place. They weren't numbered or anything. But we got a bunch of bites. But my writing partner and I wanted to produce it. This was pre-Rocky. And we wanted to produce Star in it. And um, we hired a couple of guys to produce. We had Robert Mitchum interested. I think Adrian Bow was interested. Michael Sarazen was going to be in it. I mean, we had we, we were riding the crest. I could walk into almost anybody's office. I was this like wonder kid and uh, at 22 years old. And my writing partner had to drop out. He went through a divorce, so he dropped out. So I said, well, look, I'll see what I can do. And I got another partner who said, I can raise money. Um, I will do that. My family's connected. I know this. And he sent a letter off to somebody with a thing about long and short-term CDs. And it was a big financial guy up in San Francisco who said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to put my name on a letter for you guys. And you're going to go to the first Chase Manhattan bank. They're going to give you, you know, four or five, 2 million is what we wanted to borrow. And the bottom line was we could borrow 2 million, make the movie. If the movie flopped, we recovered. And if the movie made money, we recovered. It was, it was the way the CDs paid each other off. He said, they do this in the oil industry. The fact that you guys have hit on this is brilliant. I, I knew nothing about it. I have no financial brains in that regard. So now we can go to the Chase Manhattan Bank. And he said, you know, my family wants us to do this. Can we go to my family? They've got money coming from different parts. And they were in Arkansas. And I will, I'll get the money through them instead. And if it if all, falls, if all falls apart, we can go back to, to the Chase Manhattan. So we get a week away from pre-production. We have all sorts of stuff going on, and the investors that they have coming from Greece disappear with 50, we, we wanted $50,000, and we were borrowing two, and they disappeared. Now, we're not liable for anything because it never got to us. The family, I don't know what their legal responsibility was. He went totally crazy. He dropped off, went into drugs, and, and fell out of the picture for a long time. So the, the Chase Manhattan thing. So I just stopped. I went, okay, I banged my head against these doors enough. But everybody, I would go to the people who were, who were like, oh, you're wonderful, you're marvelous. And they go, what happened to your project? So well, it fell through. They go, well, come back to me when you have another one. Uh, the doors slammed shut faster in Hollywood than I've ever <laughs> slammed shut in my life. I was riding the crest. And the next thing I was like, you know, the, the go, go feed the goats, you know, in the stable somewhere. Uh, it, it, it was an amazing, I was 23 uh, when it fell apart, 20, and uh, I was like so disillusioned. I said, okay, screw it. I'm just going to act. Enough of this, you know, and uh, I, I'm not going to try this anymore. I'll, I'll just act. But then ultimately I, I came back around. But it, it's, it, it was amazing from, from um, riding high to <laughs> really going low. And, and the people who were like, I thought were friends and colleagues and everything, who just went, nah, you know, if, you know, you're only as good as what you what you just did and you didn't do it. So goodbye. Uh, funny that you should, uh, you know, go in that direction because, uh, uh, the, uh, I, I've since our, uh, interview yesterday, uh, uh-huh. I've been contacted by a couple of people who heard the podcast and, and, uh, you know, we, um, it's a way of, you know, making new connections and reaching out and all that. So, but but everyone in this business uh, has uh, heard uh, what's known, what I call, and I think it's universally known as this, the Hollywood no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the Hollywood no is like you go into a big meeting 
and you tell them how you're going to do a movie or how you're going to get the funding or they're going to get the funding and, and any, any combination of all the above. And they say, okay, we'll get right back to you. And uh-huh. Hollywood no is absolute silence. Nothing. Not, absolutely. It's not, it's not like a quick email. Hey, I'm sorry. It didn't work out or a, right. a text or a phone call. Nothing. It is absolutely fall off the face of the earth. No, nothing. And, yeah. um, you know, it's just something that you get used to. In fact, it's almost a shock when somebody gets back to you. And um, a, 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 a funny, weird thing that I developed in, in, in Hollywood myself was I, I found out the secondary. The se- it's called a corollary. I flunked math, but at least I think I know what a corollary <laughs> is. And that uh-huh. is that um, if you don't want to talk to somebody – all you have to do is say to them, please call me back in 10 minutes. Oh, you right. will never hear from them again. <laughs> that's, <laughs> so, a, <laughs> that's the correlation. Well, You'll probably write a book on the uh, Hollywood, uh, the lack oh, of Hollywood etiquette, you know. And, well, it's, um, it's, 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 you're right. And, uh, and uh, I mean, disappo- disappointment, as a friend of mine used to say, requires adequate planning. You know, you have to have a certain expectation that things are going to work out and then they don't. And, and you have a choice at that point, either be disappointed and give up or, you know, swallow your, swallow whatever and, and move forward having learned whatever you've learned. But Hollywood, you know, we used to say this all the time that no one will ever say no to you. And they'll never say no to your face. They'll never put it in at that time, a, a letter uh, because, you know, they're afraid you're going to make it someday and you'll remember the no. And, uh, and then you want, want to work with them. I told, I turned down a TV, a TV, series i you know i had no right to turn it down i just was insulted that they offered me this part i i had these you know illusions of grandeur and they they offered me a a part in a tv show i was there with all the people in in the in the room and and the the cast director literally said you're never going to work in this town again to me privately (laughs) he's like i can't believe you did that he would never see me he never saw me never had anything to do with me ever again that'd be that's the only time someone to my face went uh, you just shot yourself in the foot. You have no idea what you've done. So and goodbye. Then, and you know, we, we kind of think that they're so un- omnipotent that they have the power to then send out a secret memo to the rest <laughs> yeah. of Hollywood saying, you know, Rex Sykes, persona non grata, don't even take his call. And, right. you, know, you know, it's like it's, it's, it's very funny how uh, some people think they have that authority over your life. Well, you have to claim your life back. I mean, I do think that it's a small enough town that sometimes your reputation can precede you, especially if you're troublesome, you know, or if you're a really cool person, people go, oh, you know, I've heard all sorts of good things about you. So I, I do think there's that, but I don't think, I don't think that, I mean, I don't believe that he spent the time or the energy or the effort to do anything like that. I mean, you know, it was, it, you know, I was, I was a lost cause at that point. There was no reason for him to go any further. So I, I don't believe, you know, but uh but I wanted to come back and ask you, because this is important. I have a lovely friend. His name is Robert Hoffman. He's the editor on Bad Santa and many other things. And, and uh, he... The editor, the editor on what, Rex? The movie Bad Santa. Bad Santa. Okay, go ahead. Yes. And a number of other features. But I mean, I, that's the one that comes to the top of my head right now. And, uh, but he has a very lovely way of saying, here's how I need to communicate with producers and directors in order to, to help them get their vision on the screen. Or if I don't think something will work... And, uh, he's, he's, he's marvelous. I love him. He's been on the show a couple of times, but I sit with him and I go, you know, tell me this. And he'll tell me about when he worked with so-and-so or he'll, t- he'll share a story about Jodie Foster when she was, 
you know, making a movie and he was working on it and how she approached things. So my question for you is, is that, you know, you said you, you know, you brought the book and said, here's what I want to do with your movie. Or you go, I've got a story idea. How do you communicate to uh, the powers that be your ideas? In other words, what are the, how, how do you, what is in your mind? What's the approach? I mean, I don't know if I'm clear, if I'm making myself really clear, clear. It's, it's, um, I can, I can preface what you're saying uh, uh, with my answer, uh, which is there's a book written by Eric Lacks about Woody Allen. And in it, he talks about Diane, his relationship with Diane Keaton and Diane Keaton would go into, and Woody would show her a, a, a rough cut of his movie and then ask her opinion. And she said, she would then say to him, uh, so are you still editing and is it still, you know, embryonic and, and can, you know, uh, uh, are you still making changes or whatever? Uh, or, or is it pretty much a locked picture? And if he said it's a locked picture, she would say, oh, hey, that's great. It's wonderful. Right. If it was embryonic, if it was still in a formative stages, she could easily say, you know what I would do? I would do this or that. And so, um, when I to, so to answer your question directly in terms right, of my, right. um, mm-hmm. I, of course, I would love. I, I mean, how do I put this delicately? I would love to write all the movies I do from this point on, but there are people out there who have great scripts and they also have funding who come to me and say, uh, "What do you think? Would you do this?" and um, about, uh, let's just say around Thanksgiving, within a day or two, uh, the, the exact, that, that thing happened. And um, without opening up my email correspondence or anything like that, the producer sent me a script. And before I even crack the script, I say, so let me know right now uh, what your feelings are about the script. Uh, is, it, is it locked? Is it, uh, or is there room in there? Uh, or, or are you happy with it? Um, uh, I've been handed scripts to direct with funding, believe it or not, where no one was happy. And uh, even the uh, author of one of the books uh, that I was uh, that I was going to adapt, the first screenplay writer, uh, had done best uh, and just barely adequate adaptation. And, and whatever this writer invented was inadequate, and it was kind of you know, lukewarm, you might say it was, it was not extreme. It was not dramatic. It was not, there wasn't enough tension. There wasn't any kind of drama. Just, just, I could go on, but I, but why bother? But every director, he or she has their own vision anyway. And so what, what you do is you simply start off by saying, are you happy with the script? And if they say pretty much, then you know that you're, uh, comments uh, will be window dressing. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they'll be. Hey, this is how. This is the room is built. Here are the colors and here's the furniture. Okay, but if they say to you, you know, we're we're we, you you know what what are your what's your opinion of it and all that, then you and you, and you sense them that you're not going to be and, and make sure that the writer's not in the room. <laughs> oh my gosh, uh, th- then you can say, well, I think the room should have different dimensions. And I think that, you know, we should switch the master bedroom with the kitchen and, you know, all that stuff. So right. I, uh, uh, that, that would be the setup. 
And then when I present the ideas, you know, I look at a film uh, and I've been taught, by the way, even up to very recently in my entire life, uh, you, when you start off writing a movie and you're young and whatever, you just you just sort of want to, uh, you know, do a, something that's got action and, and, and it's compelling and all that. But later on, you learn that every movie has a theme. Uh, and this gets down to right. the writing part. And the theme, every single scene has to contribute to the theme. It has to either prove it or be antithetical. Uh, and, 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 and it all works together for whatever the message or the theme of the film is. Uh, uh, like the theme of race, the, uh, one of my writing, um, shall we say, uh, critiques and, and, and script doctor people said, what's your theme? And I said, oh, you know, that uh, this and that. And she goes, no, 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 no. Your theme is that life is a force that can't be stopped. So when the husband and wife are talking in early in the film uh, and, the, and the, uh, the, the husband says, you know, there's a lot of maintenance to be done around this old mansion. And she says, yeah, grass just keeps growing underneath the uh, porch and it just keeps growing. Well, that was addressing the theme. And, and so right. every single uh, thing about the, um, the, uh, the, 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 every line, every character, all has to, in one way or another, uh, address the theme of the film. So that's, the, that's the, my beginning point. And if I feel that the theme is muddy, what I want to do is carve away the excess fat and, and, the, and some of the diversions and clarify the theme. And believe me, producers respond to this more than anyone else. Yeah, that's it. Now, the weirdest thing is, I did not see this movie called, what, The Silence by Martin Scorsese. Is that the name of the film? You know, I don't know. I, I, I haven't seen that either that, I, that I'm aware of. Is it? Yeah, it was, it was uh, two films ago, and uh, it was uh, going to be a, uh, you know, uh, it was this big film and all that. And uh, Scorsese, and, and I'm not knocking him or anything like that, although the film I don't think did well, but the, the, he said in an interview that I would sit around with someone else, either the editor or the writer or, the, uh, or, or somebody, and he'd say, we would sit around and we would talk about what the theme of the film was. And I'm kind of going, after what I've been told and learned, it was called silence, yes, that you should know your theme well before you're sitting around and editing. It, 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 it's almost like uh, the ship is sinking. How can we keep it afloat? You know, and um, uh, even on short films, there has to be some sort of theme. So I address that, and then we talk about characters. Um, the latest film that I was handed, uh, the script was written by other people, and uh, and there was some really great stuff in the script. But the um, how do you say it? the end of the first act was almost full of resolution. So much resolution to the plot and the characters and all that, that the next two scenes or the next two acts, I should say, the next, uh, the next 60 minutes of the movie was all ending. It's, it was all, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. 
like it's like you go on a roller coaster and the big first spill is the first you know one and then it's flat from that point on you know well you're not going to like that roller coaster ride much anymore so um i'm very aware of act structure uh what has to happen um and the weird thing is my wife decided that she was going to be a screenwriter at some point. Thank goodness she's a medical doctor. And um, uh, she dragged me to a screenplay writing class by a guy named Lou Hunter. And uh, Lou Hunter was a screenwriting teacher at UCLA, but then after me. But then he moved to back to Kansas because he loves Kansas like I would love Wisconsin. And But he said, he said, when you are watching a movie and you know suddenly what the movie is about, oh, this is what the movie's about. And that could be Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jaws, or whatever. Stop and look at your VHS machine or your DVD machine, and it's going to be minute 19. Now, I know that's very, very mechanical. That's very mechanical. Okay, and it's crap. I look at the movie I'm about to do right now, and on page 23, you know exactly what the movie's about. Now, according to Lou Hunter, I'm four pages fat. <laughs> I'm four pages that that really should be condensed or trimmed or whatever. So by the time I get to editing, and, and, and he says it's just human instinct to want to know what the film's going to be about. But, you know, there's the setup, there's the this, there's the that. Um, a script doctor named Linda Sager uh, has a chart that has points when uh, all hope is lost, the emotional conclusion, action conclusion. <clears throat> it has a point at about the two-thirds mark when some wise person has to come in with a with a bit of wisdom, and that could be Yoda, or it could be uh, my neighbor Curtis Armstrong in Risky Business, who said, "You know what? F. You know, it's it's when that outside agency comes in and gives the and uh, protagonist a little additional information. So you know, it's it's it's, it's crass, it's mechanical, but um, so I I sort of have now the and I bet you do too. Uh, the instinct when you're reading a script or writing one to know when these story beats have to happen and not be so mechanical and manipulative, but just to know kind of what's missing. And, um, and so there, so I, I just talk to producers and even other writers in a very friendly tone and it's all constructive. And, uh, I, I do a lot of, well, what about this? Or this character should be doing this by now. And, you know, we're missing an opportunity for this to happen. And, 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 and then you either get hired or you're not, you know. Um, it, it's whether they want to work with you or not. Well, I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate the, the, uh, how you approach it and your suggestions. I think it's truly important, uh, especially the idea of, of understanding where they're coming from before you you know, run into the house and go, Oh God, this is wrong. Everything needs to be redone. Um, you know, uh, uh, taking your lead or your cues from them and where they are uh, is important. We're dealing with creatives. We're dealing with people. Everybody has feelings. There's financial. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, I appreciate that. We're going to come back in just a second and talk more on this. And, and of course on, 
on uh, uh, digital distribution and other topics. Uh, but I'm going to take a break right now and do a little bit of a, a station identification, let people know uh, where we are. You're listening to Rex Sykes Movie Beat, the official web address, a legacy archived website where there's over 500 hours of recorded interviews of what to do and what not to do is at rexsykes.com. That's my name, Rex Sykes, R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S.com. Also at Blog Talk Radio. That's one word, Blog Talk Radio. If nothing else, you can search it on the internet and from the Apple iTunes store. It's Rex Sykes Movie Beat. Uh, this discussion with Michael Seibel, there's now three parts. It'll be four hours long, two separate, you know, three different uh, uh, sessions are all available at each. Uh, they're not available at rexsykes.com. They are available at Blog Talk Radio, and they are available at the iTunes store. Um, so please listen, enjoy, share, comment wherever you can, and uh, and I appreciate it. Uh, your support and uh, your, your, your sharing is important to me and to my guests. Uh, upcoming will be Director Lance Cowis. He's going to be uh, coming uh, on the show on the 14th live. We've got Michael Pfeiffer coming back. He's returning. Uh, a director, wonderful, uh, as as well as other people. Maybe Michael Seibel will come back and join us again. Uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying this. Now, I, I want to say it's what to do and what not to do. I give lots of examples of what not to do. I mean, my career was fraught with a lot of uh, ego and, and when I was young and stuff. And, and I'm a great person to tell you what not to do and, and how not to have a career and how not to navigate it. Uh, I try and I very measured give you uh, what to do when it comes to being successful and I let uh, my other guests tell you more about that and so I'm glad that they do and people like Michael and, and others have valuable contribution to this program and to you as a filmmaker or as an artist so please um, be sure that you uh, uh, listen and learn and apply and use come on Bailey I gotta try and get my dog out from under the under my moat but um, because we're here you know, homebound. I'm I'm outdoors recording this. Um, what I wanted to say, uh, Michael, I, I really love the fact that you mentioned theme. I, I teach comedy or have taught comedy uh, to to people as well as presentation skills. And one of the things that I've always harped on was the notion of theme. That that if you organize by theme, then everything should be should be your umbrella and everything falls underneath it. It's kind of like if you know your overall purpose, you can set up your goals and go step by step in the right direction to what it is what it is uh, you're trying to accomplish the notion. Uh, and here's my recommendation of the, what to do, take a thesis writing class. I think that's one of the things that can help most people understand it because with the thesis, you either have to uh, uh, propose something as if it's true or, or refute something. And then everything uh, in that thesis goes to either prove your point uh, that you're trying to prove or disprove what you're trying to disprove. And, uh, and then you're, you're, you know, if you've got a good thesis uh, writing professor, um, then, then they can help you understand because too many people get too tangential and, uh, and bring in points and things that, that aren't needed in arguments and they get distracted and they deflect and, and, and it loses its oomph. And, but if you understand a thesis and how to write your thesis, you'll, you'll understand how to, how to pursue a theme. I, and I love that, Michael. I think, I think um, uh, more people, especially uh, when I say young writers at any age, um, could, uh, could stand to benefit from looking into that area that you suggest. Um, uh, there's, there's so much to learn and so much to do. I, as a, as a uh, more experienced person, again, notice I didn't say an older person, um, I used to, I, when I was young, I, I made it a point, I would never walk out on a movie. If I, if I bought my ticket or if I snuck into the theater, however I got there, I would uh, watch the 
the movie because I felt I owed it to the filmmaker. But now I go, you know what? I don't have the time to do that in my life anymore. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm at the shorter end of, of ongoing years and I'm at, you know, at, instead of being 14 looking ahead. So um, I start to watch a movie. If, if I'm, if, if, if it's too hard for me to figure out, and by that, I don't mean that it's intricate plot twists and turns and all that. Cause it was just too hard to figure out what's going on or why I should be bothering. I'm gone. I, you know, it's kind of like if the t- first 10 pages aren't, if it's not a page turner, I don't, I'm not going to continue. I got other things and, and other things I'd rather look at and pursue. So I think, um, you know, what you have said is, um, is truly, and I hope that I'm contributing to what you said and, and not taking from it, but is, uh, I think it's really important for people to understand that we're kind of like fisher people, you know, and you have to know the right bait and you have to know when, and you have to know when to pull the, you know, you know, your bobber, you know, sinks and when you, you know, to hook your audience and to keep them with you and to, and to move them along in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a positive way so that they're pleased with the outcome. Even if they don't like what happens to characters, they still enjoyed the story. Um, anyway, enough of me. Michael. Yes, sir. We're <laughs> so quiet and patient through have all of that. Have you caught your dog yet? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, Bailey came out, which is really good. Now, I have a moat that goes from my house to the driveway, and and um, she just has recently taken uh, an interest in going down into the valley between the house and the driveway and uh, and exploring, and I don't want her to go under the moat because the, the moat you know, probably has exposed nails and things, and I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't ever been under there, so I don't know, but I just don't want her under there. Um, the other dog doesn't even bother, but, but she has gotten curious as a, as she, she's still a puppy. So, uh, let me ask you this, let, let, if you don't mind, uh, we can come back to anything. If there's other things, I don't want to, I don't want to move ahead too quickly, but why don't we talk, uh, so that we're sure that we do, uh, the digital distribution and, and getting your movie seen and, and, uh, the ins and outs of that, because you have a lot of experience in that area. Um, and then I would like to talk a little bit about the difference between making, you know, million dollar movies and studio movies and, and the work that you did on the race, which was, uh, you know, your uh, admittedly a, a shoestring budget by comparison and, uh, and, and how you have to work same or differently uh, with different budgets. <laughs> yeah. Um, I um, will uh, tell you uh, probably, you know, some bullet points and, all of this, and I, I even have a um, made a list of things for the beginning filmmaker, and I'll try to bring that up while we're talking. But uh, it it really is um, a, about uh, the, uh, at some point uh, you're going to want to make uh, if you are uh, artistically inclined, or, or or perhaps there's another element of the movie business that uh, appeals to you and uh, uh, usually on the side of production. But if you want to be an actor and you want to, or if you have a screenplay, I mean, if you think about the old way of doing it, like I did, uh, which is you write the screenplay, you send it to two or three studios, you try to get them to read it. You hope that they bite, you know, that all of that. But I mean, I really might, my, my and, 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 you know, we have that, the Horatio Alger, isn't it, uh, that says, you know, go west, young man, and, 
and all of that. Um, I think that those days are over, and uh, you should stay put, young man, and make a movie where you are. And uh, that was, was my approach to this movie that I just did about two years ago now called Wraith, W-R-A-I-T-H. And the, uh, the, the issue that I tell people is that your first movie is probably going to be funded by someone you already know. Uh, there's not going to be this mysterious guy whose Rolls Royce breaks down on the highway and you're going to be going by and help change the tire and he's going to say, what can I do to pay you back? I mean, it, it's not going to be as mystical as rubbing a bottle and having a genie appear and granting you three wishes. Uh, <laughs> I remember back when I was um, probably two movies into the business that I'd written, I called up my agent uh, or a guy who was acting as my agent. There's a huge difference. Um, and I said uh, to him, hey, I've got a project. And he responded, so does the checkout girl at Ralph's. <laughs> and, and, I mean, it was true. It was that, the, the right. you know, so to get the, the film, a film made, uh, it requires, <clears throat> you know, you can put all the energy in the world into making a movie. But if you don't have any money uh, or funding, you might find yourself on the wrong end of the formula. That's part one. Not that you can't scrape together like the famous Robert Rodriguez story with El Mariachi, where right. he did the entire feature for like $9,000. And, and, and in some ways, the, um, the conditions are more favorable to do a movie about that budget than they were when he did it, you know? Uh, and the bottom line is that uh, it does take some movie money. It does take some money to make a movie. And uh, we don't need to go into all the aspects as, as in, in that great of a detail, but right. really do, on the first go-around, have to find out... Uh, uh, find somebody who has money. Now, in order to do that, you you should have a fairly detailed idea of your movie uh, idea, where you're going to film, uh, and all of that. I wouldn't go out and hire the whole crew just yet or cast it, but have an idea who you might want to have in the movie. And I I know that we, Rex, you and I have both gone to this Wildwood Film Festival in, in Appleton, Wisconsin, a number of times. And there Correct. was a feature film there. And, and this has happened to my friends uh, numerous times. But there was a feature film there uh, that was really well done. I mean, the acting, the story was okay. The, the effects were phenomenal. The color grading, the soundtrack, all of it was phenomenal but they didn't have one single name in the movie. Right. Not, they didn't have, you know. Now, I know that a movie like, even the movie Halloween, John Carpenter, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis was just starting off, but they had Donald Pleasance. Right. You know, it, right. And, and now, that may not mean anything to the people who went to see the movie, but it meant something to the distributors. It meant something to the marketing people. So, you know, it's, it's really, um, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, I think almost 
critical that no matter what your budget is, is to find somebody. Now, there are people in Wisconsin uh, who uh, live here who have been in movies. Uh, there are people in Hollywood who might just be sitting around in their apartments or their houses, you know, with nobody calling with the big deal, you know. I've had phenomenal named actors uh, actually find out that I was doing a movie, call me and read for the part and submit a tape, uh, videotape submission of them reading the lines. I mean, it's, it's, it's humbling to me to know that they would do that for me, but at the same time, it tells you that nobody really turns off their acting switch uh, except for right. Sidney Poitier. I tried to get Sidney Poitier in a yeah. movie, and he just won't come out of retirement. Gene Hackman won't come out of retirement now. There so are anyway, a handful that maybe, but that's uh, yeah. um, that, that's um, interesting. I wanted to. I wanted to. Uh, a friend of mine tells a story of a of an Academy Award. I think he won the Academy Award. Now that I think about it, um, uh, one one did his movie. He shot it here in Wisconsin. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, one of the top name cast members here. And then he said, "What are you What are you going to do?" He said, "Well, I'm going out east to do a little student film for seven thousand dollars." He goes, "That's what you're paying you?" He said, "No, that's the budget of the student film." Yep. So, uh, you know, he, he was willing to go because the project captivated him, and uh, I, I think you, you know, and, and if worst comes to worst, you just put it out there and you ask, but you ask respect, you know, respectfully, um, and 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 a lot of people want to work, and if you got a great project, um, and you you know, and you can meet whatever then uh and you might just you might just like into it but i think your point about having somebody in it um, uh, one more thing christopher lockhart is a friend of mine he's the story editor at william morris he's responsible for getting scripts to all the star clients and going you know i think this is a good script you know let me know if you want to do it kind of thing um we were sitting in his office one day years back and he said well there's a 300 million dollar movie that'll never get made because uh you know, so-and-so just turned it down. And I said, well, what about somebody else? He said, he can't open it. And he kept going down this list of, if he can't open it, they won't open it. It's not going to be made. It's done. It's, and to this day, this was 10 years ago, the movie's never been made. And I said, well, that's the difference between a Wisconsin filmmaker and uh, and Hollywood, because a Wisconsin filmmaker won't worry about whether they, somebody can open it or not. If they got a name, they'll just go, let's get a bunch of people to go make a movie. And then most people will never see that one either. You know, sadly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. I mean, if you had great marketing people behind you and you made a movie with no cast or recognizable cast, uh, those days of like Roger Corman designing a poster right. and, 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 and having a, a pre-set arrangements with theaters to provide X number of movies a year and all of that. I mean, that, that was a different era, really. So, right. The next step in in funding and distribution is uh, we filmed in Wisconsin, and we knew there'd be a tremendous interest uh, once we were done for people to see the movie. So we uh, uh, engaged a local public relations firm, and when we had our premiere, we um, we had a uh, uh, every TV station, the newspaper, everything came and covered it, and this this. Uh, PR firm was worth its weight in in gold, uh, and it uh, uh, that that got the movie uh, shown for six weeks at the local theaters and what have you. But in order to be in the theater, the people with the large 
largest Wisconsin-based uh, theater chain said to me, Michael, in order for us to show your movie, no matter what the subject, it has to look like a movie and right. sound like a movie. And so you can't, for, for this, uh, to monetize the film, we had to go into, I think, about almost $50,000 worth of uh, optical and, and special effects work. And we also, and that includes color grading, uh, a week's worth of color grading. Uh, also, uh, we had to get a, a, the sound. And uh, the, the movie The Grudge was mixed by the same guy that we got. Ah, okay. and, and so uh, we knew we had a good a guy with horror chops. And, um, and uh, it, uh, uh, so that was another, you know, $20,000. So it, 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 to finish a movie like on a MacBook Pro uh, with, with certain editing tools you know, might be okay for a direct-to-video type thing, but for a theatrical film, you still, you just, you just need to be up to a certain level of quality or, or people just are going to respond. So th- then it came to, uh, we started getting inquiries uh, from all kinds of digital distributors, and you probably know the names of a number of them, and we got together, got a name, uh, we got about 13 or 14 inquiries on our film, and basically all their letters were the same. We can get your film in front of a billion people. We can we can get your film, you know, in in uh, what do you call it, Redbox. We can get your film, uh, you know, all over the planet, uh, uh, and, and and we're going to put it on whatever. In the meantime, there was another outfit, and maybe you can help me with their name. But they, you paid them, and they put you on all these platforms. They wouldn't take any of the profit. It was called Distriber. Uh huh. Okay. Remember Distriber? So Vaguely, yeah. You have, I've never you used have it, the option yeah. of doing it yourself, and and through Distriber, it's kind of like if you're going to sell your house, instead of using a real estate agent, putting a sign out says for sale by owner. <laughs> right. But right. Distriber has since gone under. So I mean. Uh, that was a choice that we, one of uh, one of my um, uh, executives, was very close to going with Distriber, which on paper sounds like a great idea. Uh, you pay them a fee, and they'll put you on Amazon, Netflix, HBO, whatever, and um, and, and it just it just didn't work out for them. And I'm, I'm sure they'll revive some, some way, shape, or form and maybe go at it again. But these letters for digital distribution uh, all had percentages in them. We'll distribute your film and get this percentage. Also, they wanted to charge setup fees or upfront fees. So uh, we looked at all of those, and um, uh, trust me, if you make a movie and you finish a movie, you'll be able to find at least one of these people uh, to oh, distribute gosh, it yeah. for you. Uh, or you could call them a producer's representative because they're really technically not distributors. They're the ones that will find distribution for you. Uh, I, I, I they mean, like to call I, themselves distributors, but they're not. And I want, uh, I, Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I just wanted to say, I have a film in post-production on IMDb, but Truly, I mean, it's, it's, we're not working on it currently. And people still email me just off of that going, hey, I see you got this movie. We'd like to distribute it. So, I mean, there, there, 
<laughs> Sometimes they're going to find you somehow. Well, every one of these places, if they don't, they should, but they all do have what they call a director of acquisitions. Right. And if you think about it, here's just think about this. If there was no Hollywood or Bollywood or Nollywood, we wouldn't have movie theaters. Movie theaters exist on us going out, having ideas, raising money, and um, and 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 put, giving them product to show, and an exciting product. You know, the the beauty of it for us right now is that if your movie shows in a local theater, it's gonna the ticket's gonna cost the same as a Steven Spielberg movie. Okay, no, no, um, great point. They're proposing that movies should be value priced, like a Spielberg movie should be thirty dollars, and my movie should be five dollars. You know, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, so, but that that has never come to pass. Now here's the, the, the dirty little secret. That's not dirty, and it's not really secret. But let me just use that expression: is that movie theaters um, exist to sell popcorn, right. batting cages, carousels, uh, whatever else they can, uh, you know, parlor games. Uh, they they uh, they now have some of them have bars. Uh, where you can buy alcohol, uh, they have gourmet cooking, and all of that. The movie theaters profit from those enterprises is above 90%. So they're spending around a dime to make a dollar. For movies, uh, the movie has to bring in the customers who then buy the popcorn. I know that sounds crazy. and It it wasn't always that way, but it – and you want to know why popcorn and soda cost so much. It's because that's their profit center. Um, do you remember when that happened? Do you, do you remember that, that, that uh, I forget, it was like some movie came out, like a Dino De Laurentiis film or something came out, and it did really well. And then the next, they said they always were pre-selling to the distributors, and people would have to book for like two, three months. So they would take it for two or three months, and then the film that came out next bombed. And they yeah. and they were stuck, and so they said we're not going to do this anymore. So they made their candy counter the profit center, and and the ticket the loss leader essentially, you know. And uh, uh, I mean, they, everything about distribution has changed on well, that just yeah. at, at that you know, moment, one of the and tough, it continued. One of the toughest things for people like you and me, and everybody else who's always looking for money. I mean, my gosh, on every level, people are looking for money. I just right. read an article on Robert Evans, one of the more prolific. He, re- he revived sure. Paramount Pictures. He did Godfather 1 and 2. He did The Getaway. Uh, he did uh, uh, Chinatown um, and, uh, and, uh, and, men, and several other films. I mean, this guy was it. He died practically broke. Right. And he died. He, uh, months before he died, he invited – uh, people to come in and he was still pitching ideas to make the next my, move. And he was my manager's boyfriend for many years. I mean, so, wow. you know, I mean, and, and the guy rode the top, you know, and, uh, and then, yeah, sad. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, so anyway, people are always looking for money. And, and the, one of the tougher things that we ever have to do is explain to potential investors how they're going to make their money back because there's right. so many examples of a, films not making their money back and B Hollywood accounting where a film like coming to America can make $650 million or whatever <laughs> right. it made. And Art Buckwald, who's the writer of the movie or the, the, the book never saw a dime. And, right. um, 
uh, one of the Harry Potter movies. Uh, I think it was one of the last two or three, and it was all done through Warner Brothers. Still hadn't broken even at eight hundred million, and they and the the books were opened up, and the studio had charged against the film fifty three million dollars in interest alone, interest wow. on the money that they loaned the film. So the studios were are now acting as banks, you know, like hey, we're going to give you the money to do the movie, but the second the money you know, gets into your checking account, we're charging interest on it. So if the studio gives you now $100 million to make a movie, by the time you're done a couple years later, it might be $120 million or more that the movie is. So anyway, it's all, it's, all of this is changing in the revolution and a lot of the things that have happened since 2008 is that people now are watching content like you wouldn't believe, particularly yeah. why we're having this coronavirus. My kids, there's a joke somebody just put on Facebook called, I just finished Netflix. <laughs> they, they watch everything. And the, the bottom line is that there are more platforms and more ways to view your product. Uh, however, a less uh, a, a higher amount of money, like, for instance, with Spotify, Pandora, and, and what it's done to the music business, where you can now hear any album you want practically, but the artist will receive, you know, a fraction of a penny for you, you know, your, your, uh, you know, listening or consuming their product or their art. So, uh, the, you know, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. A friend of mine is Rick Rubin, the music producer. I haven't talked to Rick in a couple of years, but, but Rick and I were sitting around one night at Nobu in Malibu and, uh, uh, with, uh, a very famous author, but, uh, I, I, I digress. The, and he was talking about uh, Napster at the time. And I'm like, do you, are you against it? He's like, no, 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 I'm totally for it. And I go, how could you be for it? They're taking money and profits. He said, yeah, it should be given away. You know, it, it, it's our creation to be given away. I said, well, it's in all candor. It's easy for you to say, cause you've made your money, <laughs> but the artists who haven't made their money, um, you know, are, are not seeing money from their efforts. And he well, goes, you know, I mean, I, and he's a lovely man. I mean, he's a tremendous talent as a music producer and, and a wonder, a lovely, lovely, lovely man. Uh, but he was, he was, you know, I mean, I have a difference of opinion. I don't think it should be given away. And, and I was concerned when everything went to the internet because the internet's really becoming, and I've thought this for a decade now, um, no different than when we were networked. You know, I mean, there's, there's big, big platforms that, can buy up little platforms and prevent you from getting your stuff out and there's you know it's, it's tough there's a lot of noise now and it's hard to get your stuff seen and then you have you still have you know the the, the parasitical um companies and and stuff that prey on 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 people and the only reason i bring this up is that what what you're saying people have to be savvy they can't just think i i think they shouldn't naively try to make a movie if they want to make money if they want to get their movie seen they have to really kind of do the business end of it know the business end of it so they don't get taken and and there are legal liabilities you know when you borrow money or use money so i mean there's things that that are really worth knowing and and you're and you're talking about that but some people to this day think you should just be able to give everything away and 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 uh, i think that model you know when you have something like netflix or hulu or something if, if they're not paying for your product the way it could be, you know, but, but you're getting it seen. Well, let me, uh, the, the last 
phrase you said, getting it seen. If that is your goal, right. you can do that. Uh, right. the, uh, the system will easily accommodate you. In other words, if you're a director or a wannabe director or an actor with friends who will make a movie showcasing your talent, or even if you're a composer or in any other capacity, the bottom line is that if you want to do this as a real as a, as a showcase for your talent and making a profit doesn't matter, you're definitely going to be using your bar mitzvah money or your, uh, your, your, your savings bonds if, you're, if your parents or grandparents got you that or your paper route allowance or whatever it is because you can't walk into an investor and say, hey, I'm going to make a movie that's going to showcase my talent and it's not <laughs> going to make a dime. Um, the funny thing is, Rex, I, and, and, I, and I bring up this next point just as an illustration, not to promote yeah. discussion, <laughs> and that is okay. I am apolitical. I do not make any political comments on Facebook because I don't want to alienate half my audience. And sure. but, the, but, the, but this is going to be as close to a political statement as I'm going to make without names or faces, and that is it's always weird when one group – who has a lot makes a suggestion that uh, is not going to affect them, but will affect another group. Okay. <laughs> like, so when you're Rick Rubin example of a guy who's made a lot has a suggestion, but it's not really going to punish him financially. Okay. It's going to punish the artists. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, if you make a suggestion, you got to go along with it. You know, you got to have skin in the game. You know, so um, anyway, long story short, I wanted to wrap up the digital distribution by saying that these contracts varied between the person who said they were going to distribute the film for you and they're really sales agents, okay? And they go around to film festivals like Berlin. Uh, Toronto, Cannes, I don't know if MeFed is as bold, uh, bold as it used to be because I once sold a film at MeFed, but anyway, in Milan. But the bottom line is that um, they all have terms, and you can actually put these terms on a graph. And uh, from the most generous terms I've run into are we will charge you 9% to 14%, somewhere in there. That actually wasn't bad. There was, uh, and they go all the way up to 25%. But then I ran into this. <laughs> we got a contract from a company in California. Then they were going to be aggressively marketing our film. And I read their contract in, in Clause 10B. Now, the only way that they'll know I'm talking about them is if this is their contract and they are aware of it. Clause 10B said, we're going to do everything we can to market your film, but if we have to make a special effort, we're going to take 50%. Wow. That, yeah, I mean, with that we're going to, we're going to double it and take 50%. I said, well, who gets to define right. what a special effort is? And so I called somebody who they, and they, they mistakenly said to me, this company, yeah, we have another film from dot, 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 and they provided me with, unknowingly, a reference. So I'm on my way driving across uh, the state. I think I'm on my way to Wausau, as a matter of fact. And I called the guy, the producer of this other film, and I said, 
So, just before I go with these guys, I'm thinking about going with them. What do you think of them? I just want to know how it's going. And the guy said, I mourn the day I met them. I regret being born. I hate life. I would give anything to get in the Wayback Machine and undo this contract. It is so onerous because they're now getting us distribution deals where the distributor takes like, you know, 33% or whatever, or 20%. And, but we have to split whatever comes from that 50-50 now. And, and, and in other words, it was a formula where you couldn't possibly make any money. You'd have right. to have, have to make five times your budget in order to break even. So you really have to be aware of these, uh, these deals. And, and, and by the way, a, a very prominent producer friend of mine in L.A. with a feature with named people in it, and, and it was a decent movie and all that, he, sh- he said, Michael, gosh, I'm looking at a distribution contract right now that basically says I'm not going to make a dime. And if I enter into this with a prominent distributor, I might add, he says, if I enter into this, my, my investors will actually be happy. Not that we don't make a dime, but they'll be happy that I've got a distribution deal. And he right. goes, what is better, to, not, to turn this down or to say, hey, I did this, but don't expect any money? And uh, I think in the end, he, he turned it down. But um, it is, uh, it, it, it's, it's wild, wet, and woolly out there. You're constantly reinventing the wheel. You're running into all these personalities. And one digital distributor even laughingly said to me, how many other guys have you been talking to? And I go, well, a number of them. And he goes, we're all thieves, right? That was his <laughs> yeah. quote. We're oh. all thieves, right? <laughs> and and well, I couldn't help but laugh at his candor. Um, so well, I really – go ahead. Well, my, my, my final advice to anyone who's going to make a feature film – uh, to, to start with, is to discover a genre that you can handle. Uh, horror lends itself to this. Uh, modern day, present day tales, uh, dramas. Um, you know, uh, you, you've got to find something that doesn't involve all period wardrobe and all period cars and stuff like that, <laughs> right, or, or right. outer space. You know. And, um, and then you've got to do it on a low enough budget. There is one distributor that I met at the, at the um, AFM, uh, the American uh, – um, it is AFM, right? And, uh, yeah. Out in Santa Monica. And yep. they, they the said – American film market. We, he said, we only handle films with budgets 50000 or less because we can make that money back and we're not going to have a bunch of investors suing us or chasing after us. So wow. there, there's a market in the digital world, which is, and by the way, you know, we had one big, huge shakeup in 2008, and we had another big shakeup when all the theaters converted from uh, projection to digital. Right. Now, the next shakeup is with this coronavirus, is there going to be social distancing? Are they going to sell seats that sit next to each other? I mean, you know, it, it, it's, right. it's going to be... It's unknown, uncharted territory, but I'll tell you, the Amazons and the Netflix, and, the, and they're going gangbusters right now. Oh, Their right. usership is up way up. So uh, it may, this may prove to 
change the course finally of American viewership habits. And um, it's not that I don't have a great home theater to begin with and watch most of my films in my own home theater, but uh, it, it really might irreparably harm uh, the weaker uh, theater chains. Um, uh, I just saw an ad, or a, a, a thing on the radio or, or internet that said, um, you don't see something on the radio, of course, but that that uh, AMC is going to open up later than expected, you know, that type of thing. And all these films that have been pushed almost a year, the James Bond film and, 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 and several other movies have been changed, pushed forward almost a year. So theatrical distribution may not be your main goal anymore. In fact, it's, it's been a lost leader for some time. Uh, well, you've, you've been de- de- you know, dealing with the tentpole comic book movies and you know, blockbusters you know, I mean, that, that get the screen. So it, it, that, that landscape has changed. But I mean, it's, it's obviously ever-changing. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, uh, I, I'll say this. I think the coronavirus is an amazing opportunity. I mean, it's, it, it, it's made, I, I'm not making light of loss of life or health or, or the things that are collapsing and falling apart. But, you know, it's kind of like, in a, and I use this metaphor cautiously, or this analogy, it's kind of like a forest fire, you know, burns up a lot of stuff, but then it promotes new growth. And what we're going to see during the Great Depression, you had people become very wealthy while a lot of people suffered. And the same thing in 2008, some people, they knew how to game the system or whatever, became extremely wealthy while other people suffered. But the same thing is happening now. And, there's gonna, and, and you know, hopefully... And, and I don't mean to make this any kind of political statement, but but a human statement that we come together as a people and we promote health and wellness and, and all sorts of things. But our business is changing and how we do business is changing and how we consume uh, our products are changing. And, and I mean, it, it, we may wake up to an entirely different world. Uh, it, it will be somewhat different for sure. And um, and so to know how to navigate that and to and to do that successfully and to be flexible enough to adjust your your admonitions about, and I really appreciate that. Um, I just keep telling people don't go to film school anymore. Although it, it, I'm not against film school. I think it's an important important piece. Go to business school. Learn financing. Learn investing. I think there's a reason why everybody's become a lawyer in this world. And I'm not big fans of lawyers necessarily, but you know you have to know how to read a contract. You have to know whether you're being stiffed or not, or you have to pay to get that surface provided to you by somebody who may not be cheap so uh, i had a guy call me up and say i want you to produce a movie with me and i kept saying okay here's what you do but i'm not an attorney we need to get a a, you know an entertainment attorney here's what you can do but i'm not an attorney you know you've got to i'm not a financial you know uh, advisor yet we need to get an attorney you know because because there's just too many things in terms of assignment of rights and these that and, and and as you point out the the percentages and the hidden charges that it's just like the, you know, they tell you to look at your cell phone bill because there's all these hidden fees and charges. The amount of money that these sales distribution companies can, can hide as, as you again pointed out is just is amazing. And if you don't know how to read it and you don't understand it, you know, you'd be loath to go ahead. Like your friends. I think, I think getting references is important. Like you did. I think having people who know what they're, you know, that can advise you is very important. Hi, Bailey. I'm going to pause. I'm going to go mute and let you talk. Um, oh, because, uh, yeah. Well, I, um, uh, as long as I have the stage here, I, uh, the, um, uh, again, it goes back to my 
uh, uh, let's see, are we? Yeah, we're still on, right? <laughs> well, I may be muted. You may be muted. Uh, oh, we're, uh, we're, uh, Bailey wants to play with Sasha, so she's running around and biting Sasha, and they're going to get very noisy in a minute. And uh, just, so I'm, yeah. but we got about uh, 18 minutes left. So, you know, take it away and I'll come back in when I can. Sure. Yeah. Well, the, the, I'll just say this too. And I'm always probably using this phrase. Let's back up a little bit or let's take a 10,000 foot view of this whole thing. Um, people are consuming entertainment. They're consuming it all the time. Uh, but it, it has to be of some quality. And, uh, you know, if you make a film, there's probably a way it's going to be, uh, it can be shown. But uh, it's very important to monetize uh, the film as well. And um, even some uh, filmmakers that you, Rex, have mentioned today uh, have not, we've not all successfully monetized our films. Um, you can saturate the market. Um, uh, way back uh, when, I knew uh, someone who made a feature film in an area that uh, was quite curious about the outcome of the film, but instead of showing it at the local theater or having much more than a premiere, uh, they instead went on the local uh, theater. Um, they they went on the Friday night midnight uh, local TV station um, channel and showed their film there, and that was for free to anybody who wanted to watch it. And I think they they missed out on uh, monetizing it and, and, and possibly making their budget back. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, there's that difference between do you need to make money for your investors or are you just making it to learn the craft, to showcase your talent, to make a calling card? And, by the way, I, I, before I forget, and the first thing to go is short-term memory. You know, uh, I think you're uh, – I, I, You might be hearing the dogs in the background, but go ahead. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, well, it's like you're shooting a movie with, with sound and – you know, the, the sound man uh, cuts the scene because there's a dog barking like five miles away and you can't hear the actors and the microphone is three, three, three inches from their mouth, you know. But anyway, um, I love the forest fire analogy. I had not heard that. I had not thought of that. But I think it's a perfect analogy that any time that this business in particular goes through a convulsion uh, of sorts, um, and, and a sea change that uh, it, it really is, it, it promotes new growth. And, yeah. um, you know, uh, it, it, uh, oh, this, the, this, the last, last note about these uh, people who are sales agents and will handle your film, uh, it's really a two-part. It's almost like buying a car. You know, like how much is the car, how much is the interest, how much is the trade-in value, and, you know, all right, of that. Right. And, 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 and ultimately – uh, the dealership will probably get you on one of those aspects. You know, they'll make their profit. Maybe you'll think you've got the best deal in the world, but you've got a bad trade-in or you have a high interest rate or whatever, you know. And the thing about these digital distributors, they will, they, they'll take X number of percentage off the top, but they also charge a setup fee. And um, I've seen setup fees as low as, uh, as um, about $10,000 all the way up to um, – 50000 But the setup fee has to come out of the profits of the film. It can't come out of your pocket. If it comes out of your pocket, run the other way because that's just a scam. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to learn. By the way, there are several good books out there 
uh, about this, and they're, pro- and they're constantly re- being revised, you know. But, uh, thinking outside the box office um, and uh, film, econ- uh, what's it called, uh, the, the Hollywood Economist, uh, version 2.0 by Jay Epstein, uh, a number of these books, um, and, and of course there's a tremendous amount on the Internet already. Just make sure when you're reading a story about film and film distribution on the Internet, always check the date of the article first. Because yeah. it was dated even last December. It's changed. You know? so, <laughs> true, uh, very true. Yeah, by all means, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, keep abreast of, of what's going on out there. And, of course, listen, listening to your uh, Rex Sykes movie beat, I think, is a good way to <laughs> – uh, uh, learn as well and, and to be current. I appreciate that. There's a book and I cannot remember the name of it. Um, I think, think, I think she said, I want to attribute something to somebody. Uh, I think thinking outside the box office is written by, uh, I want to be real careful because I think it's a friend of mine. And, uh, uh, and if that's not- <laughs> it was a friend of yours. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is I don't want to misattribute it to, somebody or whatever, but, but I, re, I recall the book. I think it is a friend of mine and uh, it was a very good book. The, uh, but there's another one and I don't remember the name of it, which was, so if this guy made a movie and he chronicled what it was like to try and get a distributor and it was a low budget movie. And he goes through all about the deliverables and all about, Hey, we're here, we're going to do it. And then they fall through and this didn't happen. And, and it was kind of a journal entry. And if I can, find the book uh i'll mention it sometime in a future show or, or something because I, I read it many years ago and i thought it was just really really uh a well put together book about here's what i faced and you may face it as well by the way there's a uh, a wonderful guy christopher mim do you know him he's a friend of mine he does low budget uh movies and sci-fi and all these different things almost in his basement and uh, where's I don't know. Huh? I mean, where is he based out of other than his basement, of course? I think I think Chris is in I see Minnesota. He, I don't think he's in Wisconsin. Uh, um, but he, he has been in Wisconsin. He, we had mutual friends. He was showing movies like like at an outdoor event where, where I went and, uh, you know, a couple of friends. And we took my kids and sat, you know, in lawn chairs and watched this film. Um, he had, releases them on DVD. They may be online, uh, but I'm in, I'm amazed, and I don't know what his budgets are, but I'm always amazed at what he pulls off. And they're parodies of like famous films you've seen. And his oh, last yeah. name is M I H M Christopher Mim. Uh, you can find him on IMDb or whatever. But he's uh, one of these one of these guys who's very innovative. I don't know how you know. I don't know anything about his business, but I mention it because he's. He's still making movies, and uh, well, you know I, I don't want to. Um, everybody has their own niche, and right. if this guy wants to be the weird Al Yankovic of of <laughs> indies, that that's his business. Uh, you know, I mean, there's a kind of a hierarchy, if you will. Uh, everyone wants to direct features, and you know, I'm I'm looking at uh, you know there there are TV movies, there's TV series, and whatever, but still the allure of doing a 90 minute to two hour in the cinema feature film is, is, is an ultimate privilege, a pleasure and a goal uh, 
things like that. Um, so I um, absolutely, uh, you know, uh, uh, understand where somebody, uh, even if they're in the film business, might be caught in a niche that, that, that they love or they found their place in the world, and God love them for that, or it's a stepping stone. And that's, and that's a sort of like analogous to my life. I, I've tried a couple of times to get what you'd call a normal job, and fortunately I wasn't able to. Um, but uh, it, it's not like I don't want to have the experience of running a McDonald's drive through or, or being the maitre d' at a restaurant and, uh, you know, would you like to sit over here? Would you like a booth or a table? You know, uh, and, and things like that. This, this sounds like the end of, um, of that, that rock movie parody, you know, Spinal Tap. <laughs> what would you do if you weren't a rock musician? You know, well, I'd, I'd, I'd be a haberdasher, you know. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, it, yeah, it, I'm just uh, doing a managerial position opens up. That's the only reason why I'm doing what I'm doing. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't catch that. I said, I, I, I have always said that I'm only doing the film business until that managerial position is open up. Oh, like it's not a okay. oh that's great. Well, yeah. um, anyway, I, uh, um, uh, what's next? Well, we've got about 10 minutes and, um, I think, I, I think there's so much, uh, I just want to say, uh, while I have the opportunity, there's so much, uh, value here and so much that you shared and it and it's it's been an awesome time that we've spent together and people can learn and I just encourage people one to check out you know your offerings and your and your projects if they if they haven't already but also um, to apply what they've what they've heard from you today um, you know protect yourself make your projects get stuff out there and 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 just be smart about it there's uh there's no shortage again of opportunity. Uh, we're we're always going through new things. Uh, change is constant, so uh, the film business will change how we shoot them. You know, I, I was going to say this the other day. You were talking about the opening shot uh, and the one continuous opening shot, and the, I loved. Uh, I don't know if it was one continuous opening shot, if I remember right. Uh, it was certainly a Steadicam thing on uh, Stan and Ollie. If you saw that, I loved the movie, and uh, I thought it was. I love that movie. Too. Sorrowfully underrepresented in, in the, you know, in regards, but um, there was uh, the player, you know, where they were talking about the shot while doing the shot, you know, and yeah. one continued. Um, do you remember? I think it was, it was Homeward Bound, with the first steady shot uh, camera, steady camera shot was included, and it was there. I think they were following David Carradine as he walked and he steps over a log and. And where you couldn't dolly through the log, the camera went up and over the log with him. And uh, I believe it was back, you know, in 75 or 6 or whenever the movie came out that the Steadicam was first used. And now it's used for everything. And now we've got drones doing what Steadicams used to do. So everything changes. I'll tell you I, uh, a couple of quick things. I, I, um, I, when I see a movie where it cuts from one drone shot to the next drone shot, I'm already lost. I mean, I'm, it's not like I'm going to turn it off, but, like, everybody loves drone footage. Everybody knows whatever, whatever. And I, I just feel strongly that a drone should be used when you can't afford a helicopter, uh, unless you want to get really tricky and go through a room with people and cut off their heads or something. It, it's just uh, very weird. But the, 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 the first shot, though, that I can think of that – oh, 
And, and by the way, there's a classic shot in Raising Arizona uh, by the Cohn brothers, and uh-huh. the, uh, the DP was Barry Sonnenfeld, who went on to be a fantastic director, and I've met Barry and worked with him a couple of times. Um, just a great guy, by the way, wonderful personality. I just got his biography, which is Call Your Mother. <laughs> Call Your Mother. Nice, nice Jewish boy. Call Your Mother. And, um, but in Raising Arizona, I think Nicolas Cage is passed out in the bar, and the camera goes up to him, raises and goes over him, and then goes back down on the bar and keeps going. Um, so uh, the thing, uh, probably a little after what you're talking about coming home, which I have to admit I, did, I have not seen, um, I, I, I just didn't feel like seeing a Vietnam movie that soon, I guess. But oh, sure. Halloween is famous for its opening shot, John Carpenter, where, the, you know, you go into the house, you see the murders, you, you go through the house, you come out, and then you get up on a crane, and, and young Michael Myers is standing there with the knife in his hand, dripping blood. And that was exactly the length. Not only was it a continuous shot, but it was the exact length of a magazine of film on a, on a Panavision camera. It was a thousand foot load that usually wow. went as long as 11 minutes. So they planned the entire thing to, you know, uh, barely get a slate at the beginning or end. And, uh, and it, it's a beautiful shot and it should be studied, um, you know, uh, continuously. Uh, many right. other famous examples of continuous shots in movies. But uh, the, the thing about it is this is a business where since the very beginning, when you've gone from uh, movie images to silent films to talking films to color films to widescreen films to, to, to digital films, every single thing at the very beginning of the new technology, people worshipped the technology more than the story. And, and they, they were um, uh, weaker films because of that. But when and drone shots is a, it can be included. Right. When you include the technology to make the best story, then you're back in sync with what you should be doing. Maybe I, that's just my opinion. No, no, no. I, I heartily agree with that opinion. You, you, and I've and I've, I've felt that way. It's like I could care less about watching a a, a Marvel comic movie because I don't like, I don't care about, it. and they've done it now better. But I was never a huge fan. We had to move indoors because it's raining, and even though I was in, uh, I was sheltered where I was, uh, the dogs were getting rained on because they wanted to be out. So now they're taking out each other in the house. But uh, um, technology should serve the story, not uh, oversh- overshadow the story. And uh, and, I, and and you're right. I mean, anytime something is new, people jump on it and want to do things. I still to this day don't like seeing a lot of camera motion. I still don't like the uh, NYPD blue camera stuff. Uh, I would prefer the olden days when um, I didn't notice the camera. I was just mesmerized by how incredibly things were filmed and the camera had a purpose for moving, not, not that we had to move the camera in order to keep us engaged, which I think is a direct result of Sesame Street and all the fast cutting away from A, B, C to one, two, three, to you and me to back and forth and all this kind of stuff that we've trained people to not have any attention span whatsoever anymore. 
And so people have to move the camera, cut through quick, you know, eight second beats on, you know, music videos and the whole thing because, or eight beat counts on, on editing, because, because we've, we have trained ourselves to, you know, it's just, it's a use it or lose it phenomenon. If, and I, you might've mentioned it the other day. It's, it's the, uh, it's the idea that if you, you know, you, you, if you now rely on your cell phone, you no longer have a memory, you no longer have a calendar, you no longer know your kids' phone numbers or any of that stuff because, you know, you're relying on the technology and, and I prefer to rely on the human. And I refer, I prefer the story over the technology. When Spider-Man first came out with Toby McGuire, I'm like, it's too blurry. I don't even like watching this. And guess what? People my age and younger will disagree with me and that's fine. But, but I heartily agree with you in terms of serve the story, not to, not to have the story be secondary to the technology. Yeah. By the way, we got about a minute. We got about a minute and a half, two minutes. Yeah, well, yours. you know, racethemovie.com, um, racethemovie.com, and Outcold Entertainment is your Facebook page. So I want to yeah, say, okay. uh, yeah, that's a good way of getting hold of me. And um, I, I will say this: that these days, when somebody approaches me with a pro, uh, a project. I right away say, "All right, let's go into development. We're not gonna we're not gonna suddenly go from zero to being standing on a set with an actor saying your lines. We need to develop the script. We need to set it up legally. We need to set up distribution. A good friend of mine who produces for Clint Eastwood says, "Don't ever roll cameras unless you have distribution. Well, below a certain budget level, that's not true. You have to roll cameras in order to get distribution. But above a right. certain level." You need to have your ducks in a row. And so if anybody comes to me these days and says, I've got a great idea, I'm going, good, let's go into development. Let's start off with a $250,000 budget, develop the script, uh, and set up everything, and then we can go raise the money or you can raise the money, that type of thing. So it's, 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 um, uh, that's the new reality. Um, and a lot of Hollywood films are doing that now. Uh, come up with the development money and let's go from there. But uh, it's been a, a pleasure uh, uh, spending these time, this time with you, and I look forward to uh, any feedback you might get from this. I've already gotten a couple of Facebook requests for you know, friends and all that stuff, but um, it's, it's just been a pleasure, and uh, I hope to see you again sometime and talk about <laughs> our common, common ground, and that's Wassa and Hollywood. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, I, I know, and, and one of these days when we all emerge, you know, um, I'll get up there. You'll get down here, and we'll we'll have a beer or a coffee or whatever the beverage is. Um, but uh, uh, did you go to Wildwood this year, I, or did they have it? I didn't go. I, I couldn't make uh, it. I had. I, I know it's the Wildwood curse. I, I, Jason Bus, uh, who used to be with the festival, um, he called it the Wildwood curse. I always have to be out of town, and I was in Georgia preparing for my next movie, wow. which we had to suspend about two weeks ago when this virus business hit and we're going to resume in August, but yeah, um, that's the reason I've had all this lovely time with you and your listeners is because I'm not on a movie set right now, but um, (laughs) yeah. So, but I, but I was gone during the festival this year. Uh, I've got about 50 seconds left and I got to say that happens with me with Wyoiga. I love the Wyoiga film festival and I'm either at AFM or I was making a movie or I'm out of town for something. And I've been uh, a part and a supporter of that uh, for almost as long as they've been doing it. And I love the festival. I was getting up there. I wasn't able to get there last year. I think I was the year before. And then I wasn't there because I'm out of town. So 
but anyway, Michael, it's been a, a great pleasure. I will give you a call right afterwards just to touch base and say thank you. We'll have to do this again sometime on the air, and I appreciate it. RafeTheMovie.com, Out Cold Entertainment. My guest is Michael Seibel, and uh, you've been listening to Rex Sykes Movie Beat. RexSykes.com is the archive site. Blog Talk Radio is the uh, where you can get the most recent ones. Share them, listen, comment, and on Facebook, okay? Uh, but also on the Apple iTunes stories. That's it. That's a wrap. Make your movies, complete your projects, and until we meet the next time, all more power to you. Stay safe and healthy. Thank you, Michael.